Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, it's great to see you this morning, and uh, I want to first of all congratulate you for having braved the weather, the cold, the rain, uh, sleet, snow, whatever you face to get here. Congratulations. Congratulations. It's great to see you. I uh, gather with you this morning to uh, look at Jesus, and we've been doing that uh, in this series, Christ Above All. We've been seeking to see Christ as He is. Uh, so that we might respond to him as he is, rather than trying to respond to him as we imagine him to be. We spent quite a bit of time already looking at Jesus' unique relationship with the universe, with the cosmos, and we've seen together that the scripture teaches, Paul teaches in Colossians, that Christ is the creator of all there is, he is the sustainer of all there is, and that ultimately he is the goal of all that is. Everything comes from him, everything is for him, Paul tells us, and everything is returning to him. Now, we've looked at that and, and we've made quite a bit about that because we've understood and we've said that uh, of all the things that, that he has made that we know about, we, we actually discover ourselves to be on a little fleck of a, of a planet uh, in, a, in a tiny solar system in a kind of run-of-the-mill galaxy with some 400 million stars uh, that belongs to a universe with uh, billions of galaxies. And so we, we got pretty small as we looked at all that Christ has made and all that Christ has done. So we've asked the question, what, what does this preeminent, this uh, Christ above all, what is, what is who he is? What does that mean for the universe? But now we want to go on and ask the question, what does this preeminent Christ, this one who creates all, sustains all, and is the goal of all, what does his life and work and identity actually mean for us on our tiny little planet and for us in our own personal lives? Inevitably, we've got to ask that question. Inevitably, no doubt the Colossians were asking that question. And Paul, like a great communicator, answers that question after he gives them this extraordinary picture. And uh, if you've been with us, you'll remember it as well. This extraordinary picture of Christ, the creator of the universe, holding the entire universe in the palm of his hand. We want to look together this uh, morning at a passage from Colossians chapter 1. We want to return there and we want to see together verses 19 through 23. We're going to give particular focus to 21, 22, and 23. If you are with us at the Sherwood campus, you will find that there are worship Bibles available for you as you enter into that campus. We want to welcome you. We're glad you're here today. If uh, you are in the Clemens campus, you'll find a worship Bible provided for you underneath the seat in front of you or underneath your seat. Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 through 23, and we want to look at that passage together. The scripture says, Paul says, speaking of Christ, for in him, verse 19, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him there was all of God there was to be. He was fully God. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, Paul turns to the Colossians. And he says, in you, verse 21, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, surely this is the case, Paul says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not 
shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister or a servant. Now, with this passage before us, I want to speak to you uh, this morning as Paul speaks to the Colossians. I want to do for you what, what uh, Paul does for the Colossians. I want to remind you of the great things that the Son of God has done. And I want to give you perhaps a new or a fresh appreciation of the extent of what he's done and what it can mean for your past, your present, and for your future. Uh, we just finished up with Thanksgiving. We uh, had uh, lots of tryptophan on uh, Thursday, as is required by tradition. Tryptophan, which means you should be very happy today. Uh, kind of lifted. Oh, turkey has tryptophan. Tryptophan is, yeah, okay, look it up. So um, we, we just got through that. One of the things that we do as a family that we've done ever since I was a boy, that my father always did, that I continue to do with my family is we have a certain time after we've gathered around the table and uh, sometimes it's before dessert, sometimes it's after dessert. I, I don't know exactly how we decide that, but it's one or the other. I don't know if it's the kind of dessert that is available that we just can't wait to get to. So we do that first or, or if you know, it's kind of, ah, well, okay. And we wait and do that after. I don't know, but there's one thing we always do on Thanksgiving, and that is we gather together in one room as a family, and uh, we take a look at a, at a couple of historic reminders of why Thanksgiving is uh, something we celebrate. Then we, we do some other things. But we, we usually begin with Benjamin Franklin complaining about the eagle being the national symbol of the United States and what a lousy bird he is, always stealing from others, and how that's a poor symbol and how he would much rather have the turkey as the symbol of the United States. Can you imagine our armed forces <laughs> with a big turkey on there, you know? Thankfully, he didn't get his way. Then we read some presidential proclamations that remind us why we're doing what we're doing. We read Washington's, we read Lincoln's, we read JFK's, we read uh, Ronald Reagan's. And uh, then we read from 1 Thessalonians 5, where the scripture calls us to be thankful in all things. And then we pause and we go around the room and I ask everyone to share one thing that they're thankful uh, to God for that he has done in the year past. And it's funny, we've done this for decades. Everybody knows it's coming. Everybody knows it's going to happen. And without fail, as soon as I say that, you see panic come over everybody's eyes. It's like, okay, I haven't thought about this in a long time. What am I thankful for? What has God done for me in this past year? And, and we're so human in my family. Because we, we human beings, we tend to forget the good things. We get focused on the little things and we miss what God has done for us. And so we, we fall into this panic trying to think, okay, what has he done? What has he done? What has he done? And I, I wish, I wish it was just, you know, natural that in our family, people were just going on and on and it took for hours and hours, but it doesn't. It, it can be pretty painful when uh, we're trying to think about what we're thankful for. Well, we are so forgetful. And, and that is a universal kind of human condition. And what we find Paul doing here in Colossians 1, particularly in verses 21 to 22, he, he's writing to the, to the uh, Colossians who, like us, are prone to forget, prone to miss the good things that God gives and does, prone to miss and forget the, the good God who gives them to us. And so he writes with concern, reminding the Colossians of the great things, particularly that the Son of God has done for them. And uh, it is for that same reason you and I need to come to this passage and we need to ask and we need to, to pursue this passage out of a real desire to do the very same thing, lest we forget what it is that Christ has done for us and why that is a reason for real thanksgiving. I want to pose this question and explore it with you today. What does 
the true story of the cross actually mean for the stories of our lives? What does the true story of the cross actually mean for the uh, stories of our lives? What is it that God has done for which we can and should be very thankful? Now, what is interesting to me and powerful to me is that in this passage, uh, the Apostle Paul shows us that the cross actually means something for every major season in our lives. And so as we read this passage, this is what we see. We see Paul telling us that as to the past, the cross actually means for us a radical opportunity. The cosmic Christ, his work on the cross, actually means for us a radical opportunity. As to our future, the cross means a specific, a very particular destiny. And finally, as to the present, the cross means an ongoing responsibility. And so we want to look together this morning at what the cross of this cosmic Christ Go out, go out, go out, go out with me. Think again of Christ holding the universe in his hands and uh, get that picture and then zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in. Come to our galaxy, come to our solar system, come to our tiny speck of a planet and come to you and come to me. Get that view and understand the significance of what his cross here on this planet means for your past, your future, your present, for the opportunity, the destiny, and the responsibility that come with his coming. I want us to look at each of those this morning. I want you to see with me, first of all, that when it comes to the past, Paul reminds us that the cross means a radical opportunity. Look with me at verses 21 through 22a. Paul says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. By his death. There's nothing more fascinating to me, I think, than the story of another person's past. And what Paul is essentially doing here is telling the story of the Colossians past, which is a curious thing to me because he's never met them. He doesn't know them. He's just writing to them and he's giving them quite a description of themselves, isn't he? Isn't he? Hostile. Yeah. Yeah. Alienated. Um, evil. But um, there's nothing more fascinating to me than, than to hear the story of another person's past. Uh, when that person is open and when they're free enough to share, what I've discovered over the years, and particularly in ministry, is that there are very, very few lives that don't have something that is unique to them and actually inspiring. That there are very few lives that don't have something that is unique to them and actually incredibly inspiring, inspiring. There have been people that I've known and, uh, and walked with through, through life and then uh, buried and, and done their, their funeral service, done their memorial service. And uh, I come away from talking with the family before I do the service to, in order to build that memorial service, that message. And, 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 and I've come away time and time again amazed at who this person was. Thinking that I knew them, I discovered I really didn't know them. I, I really didn't know all that was unique about them. And I didn't really know all that was inspiring about them. And, and it's rare for me not to come away saying, I wish I'd known her better. Or I wish I'd known him better. Because inevitably, every single life story has got some unique facets to it. And some unique, unique responses that make that life inspiring. But... There's another side to our stories, and, and that side is this. There are some things about you and me and our past that are all the same, that are not unique, and they're not, quite frankly, very inspiring. There is a part of our past that we share, and we find it in Paul's description of the Colossians' condition in the past before they came to know Christ. We find inspiration and hope in God's response to it, and he speaks to that as well. But I want you to see this with me because their condition and God's response are vital to us because their condition is actually our condition, and God's response to that condition 
is ultimately what creates and is for us our greatest life's opportunity. Let's look at it. First, notice with me, Paul says that the Colossians lived their lives alienated or estranged from God. This alienation was not an external thing. It, it, it is not as if God is in a heaven somewhere light years away and so we are separated there. But, but the, the estrangement, the separation is an interior thing. It, it is an internal thing. It affected their inmost being, Paul is saying. It affected their hearts, their minds, their wills, their emotions. He locates the source of this alienation in their minds or their attitudes. You see what he says there. He says you had a hostile way of thinking. Your way of thinking about God was hostile. So he describes them as alienated from God, separated from God because of the way they thought about God. It, the, the way they thought was self-centered and self-focused, but, but uh, instead of being God-centered and God-focused, but it was actually hostile to him. And we see that. It's, it, it's right there at the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. Satan comes. What, what is his appeal? What, what, is, what is his call to, to Adam and Eve? It is, look, 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 God's keeping something from you. You can't trust him. Did he say you shouldn't eat of this tree? Yes, that's what he said. Well, see, he, here's what he knows. If you eat of that tree, you're going to be just like him. You don't have everything you need to really live. God is not your friend. God is your enemy. He is keeping you from what you need to be satisfied in life. So you really ought to go on and take of that fruit. And then if you do, then you'll know life and you'll know death. You'll be just like God. And ever since then, you and I have been born with a, an, a hostility toward God. We resent him. We resist him. We resent him and resist him for his holiness, for his goodness. We resent him. We resist him for those good laws of life that he's given us, that's, that, that, that he gave us so that we might really live. We, we resent it when he says we should be generous. We naturally want to say things like, oh, no, I earned that. I made that money. That's my money. I'm not giving that to poor people. If they, if they need it, let them get a job. We resist him. We resent him. We, we work against him. We, we literally, and this is what Paul is saying, we have made God our enemy. He didn't make himself our enemy. We made him in our minds our enemy enemy. And as a consequence of our thinking, of our rebelling against him, of our resenting him and resisting him, we committed evil deeds, Paul says. The Colossians committed evil deeds. We all have committed evil deeds. Now, immediately, I've got people in the room right now who are saying, I'm not Stalin. I'm not Idi Amin. I'm not Hitler. And I say, we're so thankful we're so thankful and grateful for that confession that gives us all pause and uh, rest, to be sure. But if you define or understand evil in terms of what, what it, it actually conveys, that is harm done to others, then the reality is, if we're honest, we've all done things that are evil because we have all done things that harmed others. Now, none of us is as evil as we could be. I mean, without question, Stalin and Hitler pressed the edges. Absolutely. None of us are as evil as we could be, but none of us is as good as we should be. And all of us have done harm. And so what I want you to see here is that uh, Paul speaks to the Colossians. He describes them and says, this is the way you were before Christ. He uses this strong language and he writes it to people that he's never met, but he writes it with a confidence. Why? Because Paul knows them. How does he know them if he doesn't know them? Because Paul knows Paul. Because Paul knew Saul. Because Paul knew where he personally had been. He knew what his condition was before Christ, one of alienation and hostility 
and evil, fighting God, making themselves his enemies with their thoughts, their hearts, and their deeds. He had done the same thing. His affections, his attitudes, his activities, so deeply ingrained in him, couldn't be removed, couldn't be altered, couldn't be stopped, couldn't be fixed. He knew that they were in the same shape he was in. And so what we have here is a picture of a, of a, a sad, a tragic, and a hopeless condition, which is where the Colossians were and which is where our world is. You know, I wish, I, I pray that the day would come when, when our church, when those who profess to be followers of Jesus I pray that, that the day will come when you and I understand fully that this was our personal condition and that this is the condition of our world. I think if we did, we would be kinder. We would be more sensitive. And rather than railing against all that's wrong in our culture and wrong in our society and complaining and attacking, we would do much more weeping. That we would be in this world much more humble than sometimes professing believers are. As if somehow our hostility really wasn't that serious and our alienation wasn't that bad and our evil wasn't really that evil, but theirs really is. I wish that um, we could see that though we're not enemies now, we were. And that if the world is an enemy of God, and it is, they are just like us. before we came to Christ. I think we'd stop attacking and we'd start praying more. I think we'd stop being so fearful and I think we'd be a little more aggressive in terms of loving people enough to care for them and find ways to point them to Jesus. I wish we knew and I wish we remembered that our story is their story. I wish we remembered that every single one of us was designed for obedient fellowship with God resting on love for him, but to a person without exception 
We've ruined God's design by the sinful choice to love ourselves more than we love him, to satisfy ourselves more than we satisfy him. That every single one of us has undergone a shift in our affections that caused our alienation from God, that creates our hostility to him and motivates the harm we do to each other. The responsibility for this condition Paul shows us in this passage lay with the Colossians and all of us. It's what we did. It's what we've done. It's who we are. It's how we are. So what's the opportunity here? You say there's a radical opportunity in, in, in this, and there is. Look at verse 22. And I love this. Paul says, you once were, but now you are. Now he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. The radical opportunity we have is a reconciliation with transformation. A reconciliation with transformation. Now reconciliation is a word that we perhaps don't use a great deal, but let me give you a, a, a real uh, uh, essential definition of it. To reconcile is to take and make an enemy a friend. To make an enemy a friend. What Paul is saying is this, God has worked and acted in Jesus to take those who made themselves his enemy, all of us, and give them an opportunity to become his friends. And when he takes his enemies and makes them his friends, he changes them. Watch, 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 watch. He doesn't say, now you've got to change and then you'll be my friend. No, that's a false gospel. He says, I'm offering to you friendship and if you will come, I'll change you. Now, Paul says, he has reconciled you. The, the hard attitude of rebellion and resentment, the, the record of evil deeds done in opposition to God, the pursuit of self, all of this that's been true of Steve Kortz, all of this that has been true of you, all of this can be changed. All of this can be changed. I don't have to stay an enemy of God, even though I can't stop my hostility. He has made a way for it to stop. How did he do it? In the body of Christ, by the death of Christ. By his grace and mercy, the Colossians now are reconciled. They've been made his friends. Paul says that these enemies of God were made friends of God, not by anything they've done, but by something God did. He did what they couldn't do. He reconciled them to himself once and for all time in Christ, in his body, by his death. All the Colossians can do is accept what he has done and, and accept it thankfully. And they are now, Paul says, reconciled. They are now God's friends. The place where all of this transpired was at the cross, not first in their hearts, but at the cross. And what allows the Colossians to be different is not something that first happened to them, but something that happened for them at the cross. God put their sins on Jesus. He caused their sins to be made to belong to Jesus so that their guilt for their sin became his guilt. And so the one who had never known sin bore the pain and anguish of our sin. Listen, lots of people died on a cross and suffered physically. The real pain of Christ, that was real pain, but the greater pain of Christ was in the suffering he experienced bearing my sins and your sins and suffering the anguish and the guilt and the separation, the alienation that he experienced on the cross. Crying out, my God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? This is the one for whom the very thought of sin and the presence of evil contradicted everything about him. And yet in obedience to his father and out of love for you and out of love for me, he took on himself all the sins of the world. So Paul explains it in Romans 8 saying, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, he condemned, judged our sin in Jesus. God set us free when he set his son to be like us and to be a sacrifice for our sin, paying our penalty fully and finally. He used Christ's body to judge our sin. And it was in this way that Christ became a curse for us so that we might not be cursed with the death penalty of sin, but be free of it. When Christ died and then was raised, he broke the power of sin. And it was there that he made change in us a real opportunity for us. And so Paul says of the Colossian believers that the opportunity for change, they once were this, but now they're this. The opportunity for change became a reality. Change, transformation by reconciliation is the radical opportunity that is ours because of Christ's work on the cross. God, though we set ourselves up as his enemies, refused to make himself our enemy, but instead offered to us his friendship in spite of us. And that is at the very heart of the gospel. By his death, I can be changed by his death, my relationship with God is transformed forever. By his death and his resurrection, there is a new life that I can live, a new life that can begin. There can be a radical transformation of what my mind thinks and what my heart loves and what my hands do. Because of the cross of Jesus, There can be an end of the old and the opportunity for the new. And what this means is that the reconciled person can live saying some extraordinary things. Here we go. You ready? I don't have to be what I've always been. Because of Christ, I don't have to think the way I've always thought. Because of Christ, I don't have to do what I've always done. Because of, true, of Christ in truth, now I am not who I was. And this is the first great truth that a reconciled man or woman learns to declare about himself or herself. When Satan comes and says, you don't measure up, the, the, the person who's been reconciled to God in Christ says, you are absolutely right, I don't. 
But that doesn't matter anymore. Because I have one who has measured up and more for me. And because of what he's done, I am not what I was. I don't do what I did. I don't think the way I thought. I don't love the way I loved. I know I don't have it all down yet. But the one who got it down perfectly has given me all of his righteousness and he's making me day in and day out more like him. I'm not what I was. I think I've come to love it when people say, do you know so-and-so? You know, they claim to be a Christian and they're awful. I love it when they do that because I like to be able to come back if I know the person pretty well. I love to be able to come back and say, you know, he's a member of your church and he's awful. I love to come back and, and say to them, yeah, can you imagine what they'd be like without Jesus? <laughs> All right, let's move on. I want you to see that uh, as to the future, the cross means a specific destiny. As to the past, it means a radical opportunity for change. As to the future, the cross means a specific destiny. And you, verse 22b, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And this is another one of those places where our individual stories, unique as they are, merge. None of us knows what's going to happen in the future. None of us can control the future, but all of us know that all life, including our own, ends in death. We have a, a, a date with it we cannot erase. Every single one of us has an expiration date attached to our lives. Look around you. Everybody's got a date floating over their heads. There's a happy thought. And we almost universally wonder if there isn't more after death. The Bible boldly insists that there is and that it all hinges on what Christ has done and on what we do with Christ. And so here at the end of verse 22, Paul describes God's definite final purpose behind the reconciliation of his enemies in Christ. And he says, here is my purpose. This is why I've taken my enemies and turned them into friends. I want there to be a day when they stand before me holy and without blemish and above reproach. To be holy before God is, is to live separate from sin, hating it like Jesus hated it. To be without blemish before God is to be perfect in the practice of moral purity. To be above reproach before God is to be in such a state that the accuser of God's people has no accusation of real wrongdoing that he can make. This is the intended effect of God's work of turning his enemies into, into friends. Now, if you listen to that, you say almost immediately, you'd have to, wouldn't you? There's no way I could be holy, that I could live separate from sin, hating it. There's still some sins I love. I mean, gossip is delicious. To be without blemish, to be perfect in the practice of moral purity. I've already blown that. I, I can't do that. To be above reproach so Satan can't make an accusation and make it stick. I, I can't do that. There's stuff he can say. It's true. But the father says, Here, here's, my, here's my goal. In and through the cross. It is going to be true that when every believer stands before my son at the judgment seat of Christ, they will have absolutely no reason for terror, fear. Because in my son, they will stand 
completely holy. They will hate sin just like Jesus hates it. And on that final day, they will stand before me absolutely blameless. Like they had never sinned the first time. Why? Because I took care of all of that at the cross. And they will stand before me and Satan will have not a word to say in accusation because he will have nothing he can say. And so there will be no terror or fear, but there will be a worship fear. And while I suspect, while we have the right and we'll have the right to stand in the presence of a holy God, having been made holy like him, we will only be able to fall before him because he has done such a thing for us. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I do know I have a date with destiny. And my date is with him who loved me and gave himself for me to make me in the end perfect and complete, holy as he is holy. You see, he took me as an enemy, made me a friend so that I might become with him family forever. That's my destiny. That's my destiny. That's my destiny. And that's why believers who've been truly reconciled say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. They don't say, oh, don't come yet. I'm not ready. Finally, I want you to see as to the present, the cross means an ongoing responsibility. You know, this means, of course, because the cross means a specific destiny. It means that a believer, a, recon a, gen a person who's been genuinely reconciled can say, not only I'm not what I was, they can also say, I'm not what I will be. And this is that glad pair of truths that a reconciled woman or a reconciled man lives telling themselves every day. Steve, you're not what you were, but you're not what you will be either. God's doing a work. Stay faithful. Which is exactly what Paul says here. Did you notice? Verse 23, and you, God has now reconciled, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Final place where our otherwise unique stories merge is in the here and now, the present. Each of us is living right now, directed by the choices we're making. And while it's true that the choices of others impact our lives, it's also true that what is most important is not what others and life bring to us, but what we choose to do with the life we have. Those who get the most out of life are those who make the most of the life they have, and the life that a believer has is a reconciled life, a life where God is committed to working and is working. The Bible insists that we are responsible for the choices we make. 
So here Paul speaks directly to believers and says that the proof that their lives have been reconciled to God lay not in mere profession of faith, but in a condition of faith. Truly reconciled lives have a persistent demonstration of dependence on Christ and his gospel throughout life. They are those who continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they heard at the first. They are those who don't shift from or abandon the hope that Christ gives of a changed past and a secure future in the present. They're the ones who persist in living on the basis of what Christ has done, regardless of what is offered to them or done to them. They claim and they keep nurturing the faith and the hope that is theirs in him by focusing their lives on him as their living hope. They let Christ define who they are. They let Christ define what they do. They let Christ determine the direction and the course of their lives. They let Christ determine the quality of their lives. They let Christ and his promises give them joy and give them peace when others can't find it. Reconciled believers may indeed stray from Christ, but they don't stay that way because they can't. You may stray, but you can't stay. If you can stay, then you never were a reconciled follower of Jesus. He won't let us if we are his. So believers, Paul says to the Colossians, your responsibility is not to save yourself. It isn't your responsibility to stay saved. Your responsibility is to make the most of the Savior and make the most of the gospel that you've been given to stand firm in, to rest on the crucified and resurrected Christ alone. No matter what happens, no matter what comes your way, Paul says, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's the proof of your reconciliation. It's not a simple profession. Keep your eyes focused on the good news of your living hope. The ongoing responsibility that the Christ gives to those who are reconciled is to stay focused on the hope Jesus is. It is to live saying to yourself every day, I am not what I was. I am not what I will be. I am not what I should be, but I will be all I can be, Christ helping me. Want me to say that to you again? Yeah, you do. Yeah, okay. I am not what I was. I am not what I will be. I am not what I should be, but I will be all I can be in Christ. This is the final truth a reconciled woman or man lives with and lives out. What does the true story of the cross mean for the stories of our lives? story of the cross means a radically changed heart, an eternal friendship with God, and a living hope that cannot, does not die. I may stray, but I don't stay. His love has changed me. I belong to him. Have you been reconciled? The question is not do you call God friend, but does God call you? friend. We all start out as enemies. By his grace, we have the opportunity for change.
he offers to us the gift of his friendship by repentance, turning from our sin, and faith in the cosmic Christ and his cross. Old lives are made new. A fresh start is possible. Real hope lives. So, Father God, in this place together, wow, seeing what you have done for us inspires us, challenges us, No, Father, for some in this room, for some there in Sherwood today, this is the first time they've ever really heard the gospel. The first time they've ever understood why your son is good news and why the cross matters and makes such a difference. Oh, Father, I pray for every person who wants a changed past, a sure destiny, and a sense of more in the present, I pray today would be the day they would step across the line from enemy to friend. Trusting in the one who came and gave his all so they might live. I pray, Father, for every believer in this room that they would look to see whether they have stayed or whether they have strayed. Whether they have stayed firm in their commitment to the gospel and remembering who they are in Christ or whether they have bought into a lie and strayed somehow, somewhere. For every one of them, I pray they would come back. You helping them. Father, your word says, because you loved us first, we are able to love you. And in this time of decision and reflection, we pause to declare our love for him who gave himself out of love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kors. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.